Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. I had this lit professor in college who never stopped talking about a sense of place and how it impacted everything about a story, both fiction and otherwise. It was kind of annoying, but today we've got two very different books that prove him right. In a bit, we'll hear from writer Clint Smith, whose book How the Word is Passed uses different locations across the country, plantations, cemeteries, museums, and more, to talk about the history of slavery in America. But first, a kid's book. Trisha Ellen Walker and Equa Holmes are cousins who wrote and illustrated a book together called Dream Street, inspired by the street in Boston they both grew up on. The people, the architecture, the beauty they saw around them. And Holmes tells NPR Scott Simon that there's something wonderful about being eight or so, because that's when your imagination, you know, your curiosity is at its freest. Many of the people we hear from for Picture This are a series of conversations between children's book authors and illustrators, are complete strangers before they're paired up by an editor. But author Tricia Elam Walker and illustrator Aqua Holmes have known each other for years. Ha ha. We're cousins. <laughs> We're two of a kind, like they used to say in the right. Patty Duke show. We kind of grew up together, played a lot together, and created a lot together. Yeah, about eight or nine months apart, I think. I'm older. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tricia Elam Walker and Aqua Holmes also grew up together in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And Elam Walker says their neighborhood was the inspiration for their first children's book together, Dream Street. Dream Street is based on our neighborhood. The beauty of it, the community of it. We really wanted to write a book where children could see themselves in it as well as know that their dreams are important. And also we wanted to show that the adults have dreams too. So this is just a place where creativity abounds and imagination and dreams are celebrated. We kind of approached this book differently. We wanted to do something together. Here we are, we're mature adults and Trisha has become the writer that she wanted to be. I've become the artist that I wanted to be. And we thought we should make a book together. Like it just is the perfect next thing for us to do. Um, And we threw around different subjects and we couldn't find, we couldn't land on one that satisfied both of us. So I said, well, I'm going to send you a bunch of collages, images of collages and see what you can do. See if you can find something. When Aqua sent me those collages, at first it was a bit daunting for me to try to figure out a story from them because I was, you know, so used to creating the story in my mind. But when I started looking at her work, which I've always loved and admired so much, I realized how much of a storyteller she is. And so the stories were embedded in the art. And then, and once I got that, it was like, okay, this person has a story, that person has a story. And then it just came together that they're all on this street and the street is Dream Street. Trisha Elam Walker and Aqua Holmes filled Dream Street with characters from their childhood neighborhood. Miss Sarah, the hat lady who's lived on Dream Street longer than anyone and who has stories between the lines of her face. Belle, who catches butterflies in a jar. Two cousins who draw and write together on a bedroom floor. Edie lives at the top of the hill and searches for treasures that others throw away. She collects smooth rocks, broken jewelry, leaves and feathers, and adds them to her drawings of people on Dream Street. Meanwhile, her cousin Tari pays attention when new folks come around so she can make up stories about them. In her notebook, she scribbles down the things she hears when they don't know she's listening. 
the cousins dream that someday they'll create a picture book together about everyone they know and meet on Dream Street. So who else was, I mean, I think we thought about some of the church ladies, the librarians based on my mother, and that was actually Aqua's idea. Why don't we name the librarian Miss Barbara? And then some of our cousins are in there, but we also wanted to show people in the neighborhood who were reflections of people that we knew, like Mr. Sidney. We didn't really know that person, but we knew people like that. So he's very dignified. He, he wears a fedora. He dresses up every day. And that's similar to how the people that we grew up with were. He's like a composite of Trisha's uncles and a gentleman that used to do uh, work on a street where I lived in the South End. And one day he showed up all dressed up in this fedora and this black jacket. And he looked really sharp. And I said, can I take your picture? You look so different because normally you'd have on overalls. And so there was already a story in there. And I, I don't think I told Trisha that, but somehow it kind of bled through into um, what she wrote, that this man is having a moment of pride and uh, a moment where he's expressing something that he's al- always wanted to express through his fashion Um, But every piece that I sent her, there's a story, there's a reason why I made those pieces of artwork. I did not know that story at all about that gentleman. For that one, I really thought about my grandfather who used to clean white people's houses and he would pack his cleaning clothes in 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 like a briefcase and wear a suit to take the train out to where he had to work. And then at the end of the day, change his clothes back. And I didn't understand it when I was little, but as I grew up, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Many men did that in that in that era. Dream Street is vibrant. Mr. Sidney sits on bright orange and purple stairs. Miss Sarah's hat is covered in flowers, and each page is full of texture and patterns. Collage uh, simply means to paste down. And so the art is made from cut and torn paper. It may be a piece of poetry that I found in an old discarded book that seems to fit right in to tell a story. It might be a piece of wallpaper from the 1950s that is in the background of a little girl reading a book. Um, So I use lace and fabric and things like that. I love things that have been used before because they already have a life, they already have a story. And now I'm assembling it with other details that make up another story. I think of it as like uh, creating a quilt of shapes and color and form and text. And that is how I tell my stories. And she's always been like that. I just remember as a child, her picking up things like outside or I don't know, maybe things that were in the trash that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that she saw the beauty in. And I was like, wow, what is she going to do with that? (laughs) But, But now I understand that. And so sometimes when I'm in thrift stores, I'm looking at things thinking, I wonder if Aqua could figure out something to do with that. I wonder if that's something she wants. I'm dangerous to myself. (laughs) And I um, got a little pushback about how beautiful the neighborhood was in terms of the illustrations, but we grew up in a neighborhood full of parks and trees and gardens and flowers, and Boston's a very old city, so you can imagine uh, some of the houses are Mansard style, some of Victorians, and then some of the more modern ones. So it really is a reflection of how we grew up. And I would imagine there are other children whose neighborhoods don't fit the stereotype of, of what a Black neighborhood might be like. And we had, I remember we had a big, we, we used to think of it like a forest in the back of my house. And it was an urban neighborhood, but we could go in there and discover all kinds of things. 
Um, I was talking to another artist recently about, I think there's a part of us that gets frozen in childhood because that's the time in our lives when we are the most free, the most imaginative, the most curious, and the most willing to take risk. So I feel like there's a part of me that stayed eight years old and that that is the part that I'm trying to give voice to in my work. Um, so you might see as um, we were talking about the church ladies, I was always fascinated with them and their beautiful hats and flowers and how regal they were and their gray hair uh, or just people at the bus stop and the sort of tableau of, of how people arrange themselves at a bus stop or a little girl who loves butterflies and how she might be looking out the window and watching that. Those are the moments that we may walk by every day and not realize how precious they are until an artist a photographer, a songwriter, holds it up to us in the light and we say, oh, wow, what a gift. We started in a light and happy sort of sense of place, but there are darker ones, you know? There, there are just some places that feel heavy. Angola is a maximum security prison in Louisiana that is such a place. It's large, and in fact, it's the biggest maximum security prison in the country. And it's built on what was once a plantation. It also has a gift shop that sells t-shirts and koozies and various other tchotchkes. It was one of the locations writer Clint Smith visited for his history book on slavery in America titled How the Word is Passed. And he told NPR's Mary Louise Kelly that it was important to talk about slavery in the context of these places that are still around to remind people slavery wasn't that long ago. A new book challenges us to consider slavery, not as a sidebar to American history, but as the story. The history of slavery, writes Clint Smith, is the history of the United States. To build his case, Smith traveled to plantations and memorials, to cemeteries and museums, trying to understand how different places reckon with their relationship to the history of American slavery. The result is his new book, How the Word is Passed. Clint Smith, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Explain the title. So the title is taken from a quote from a descendant of Monticello's Black community. And it is a reference to the oral histories um, and stories that are passed down across generations through the Monticello community and through the descendants of that community, thinking about how the story of Jefferson is often the one that is lifted up when we think about the, the history of Monticello and the legacy of Monticello. But the reality is that there were hundreds of black people across generations who lived on that land, who created community on that land, who cultivated that land, whose stories have not historically been lifted up in the same way that the, the story and legacy of Jefferson has been. You, you went to Monticello. You went on a tour. Tell me about the two white ladies you met. These are self-proclaimed history buffs, and they had come on this tour of Monticello with you, a tour that focused on slavery. Yeah, so uh, Donna and Grace are their names, and I went up to them after we had been together on this Slavery at Monticello tour. So Monticello has a tour of the main house, which is the primary tour, and then they have additional tours. They have a, a tour that's focused on Slavery at Monticello, and as I was on this tour, I saw their their faces change and, and their mouths sort of hang agape, and they were clearly unnerved by by so much of what they were hearing and clearly shocked by it. And so I went up to them after our tour uh, and I just started asking them questions about how they had experienced what we had just heard. And it was a powerful moment because they were like, 
I had no idea that Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea that Monticello was built with the help of enslaved people. And it was an important moment and reminder for me, not everybody understands Jefferson as an enslaver. Um, and I think that that is reflective of a profound failure that we have in this country um, in which the memory and the history of slavery uh, has been so distorted and has been so erased and has been so minimized relative to what the impact that it actually had on this country. Some of the places you visited are really wrestling with how to tell the story accurately um, of mm. what unfolded in that place, the history of slavery in that place. Some are not doing it, in your judgment, very well. Ta- tell us about a place that's that hasn't quite figured it out yet. So one of the places that I go is Angola Prison. Uh, Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country, 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan, where the vast majority of people held there are black men serving life sentences who go out into fields every day on land that was once a plantation and pick crops for virtually no pay while someone watches them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And what does it mean that that prison has a gift shop? Yeah, that was that was the detail that blew my mind. And, you know, one of the most unsettling things was walking in to this gift shop, which is attached to a museum that, as I experienced it, did not say anything about the history of slavery that existed on that land. And there was a coffee mug uh, that had the silhouette of the Angola's front gate. And, and above and below, it said Angola, a gated community. So it's one thing to not address the history of slavery, it also feels like something wholly different to make a mockery about what is transpiring on that land. And so Angola is a place that seems to have little interest in acknowledging and confronting that history. You keep talking about the land, the land on which these people walked, the land on which you went to walk to go re-examine these events. You're talking about the Mm. land... um, almost like a primary document. (laughs) And I want to dig in on that, why that was so important to go there, to walk it, as opposed to the history that we all read in books. Yeah, I think there's, it's one thing to read about the structure of a slave cabin. And it's another thing to stand inside of one. I think part of what these places do is create uh, human texture emotional texture, and and remind us that this history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago wasn't, in fact, that long ago at all. You know, when I think of my four-year-old son and him sitting on my grandfather's lap, I think of my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap, and I'm reminded that my grandfather's grandfather is someone who was born into slavery. And so there are people who are alive today who were loved by, who had relationships with, who were raised by, who were in community with, people who were born into intergenerational chattel slavery. And so the idea that we would suggest that that history has nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is both morally and intellectually disingenuous. And I think that when we are on this land and when we're in these buildings that have a direct relationship to this history that, again, isn't that long ago, we feel our, our proximity to it in a way that I think is really powerful. You used to teach, right? High school English? I did. This was in uh, Prince George's County, Maryland. And 
you say that this project in part was about trying to write the kind of book you would have wanted to teach your students. Mm. What is it you wanted your former students to know? I remember when I was young, I felt like I didn't have the language or the framework or the toolkit with which to understand why the world around me looked the way that it did. And I was inundated with messages about why black people writ large lived in the conditions uh, that we did. And we were told sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly that it was our fault. And I felt like I hadn't, I didn't have this history to help ground me in an understanding of why the, my society and why this country looked the way that it did. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I gained access to the sort of knowledge that gave me a toolkit with which to understand all the ways that this country has lied to me about my community. And so what I wanted for this book to be was something that helped me understand and, and I hope is the sort of text that would have helped my students understand that it would be the sort of book that would be both a historical document, but also an engaging one, one that feels like they are on this journey alongside me. We've been talking about the book, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Mr. Smith, thank you. Thanks so much. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Petra Mayer is our founding editor. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Sylvie Douglas, Megan Kane, Nina Kravinsky, Ziad Butch, Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Justine Kennan, and Sam Gringloss. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. 